From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Second Amendment absolutism, you know, which my my former colleague, Marianne Franks, was really uh, a leading light and talking about, right, is still out there. And you can support the Second Amendment without the absolutism, right, that I have thing. And there's a case before the Supreme Court right now where it was interesting to see the justices squirm, right, with their broad approach to, well, the majority of the court toward allowing Second Amendment right. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Michigan parents Jennifer and Jason Crumbly are being tried for manslaughter for a school shooting committed by their son. Criminal law expert Scott Sunby looks at the crime and the impact. Let's go to our executive producer, Catherine Skip, with the interview. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Catherine. So good to see you again. Nice to have you back. So the Michigan mother of a 15-year-old school shooter is on trial for manslaughter, stemming from the killing by her son of four students and the wounding of seven, including a teacher. So let's dig into that case a little bit. And how unusual is this trial? So it is getting a lot of attention, not just in the media, but also in legal circles, because It really is pushing the envelope on criminal liability. And we'll talk, I think, more about the the facts and why I think this is being prosecuted as a homicide and voluntary manslaughter, but why it's also so unusual pushing the envelope, so to speak, right? Because as a general rule, we are very hesitant, I might say loathe, as a criminal justice system to hold people responsible for other people's actions. Now, if you and I agree to rob a bank, that's easy, right? Because I want to do it. We have an agreement. It's conspiracy. If I drive the getaway car for you or I give you the gun saying, I think this will make our bank robbery easier, then it's what we call aiding and abetting. Even if I just encourage you like, Mm -hmm. yeah, Catherine, that sounds like a really good way (laughs) to get rid of your debts, right? That can be aiding and abetting. But in all those instances, it's relatively easy to say I'm responsible for your actions in part because I helped facilitate them, Mm -hmm. right? It gets a lot dicier when I do an action, which is part of, as we lawyers would say, the causal chain, right? right? Without my actions, this might not have happened, but I didn't necessarily want you to do it, right? And that's where we usually say proximate cause is broken because People act out of their own free will and individuals. And there's this concern, the classic slippery slope, right? Right. Which uh, we love to bring up as the nightmare scenarios that, you know, I'm the gun dealer. I sell you the gun legally. You go out and do a shooting or rob a bank. And they say, well, you sold the gun. And I'm like, well, I didn't know what he was going to do. Or even if I had a hunch, he made his own decision, right? Mm -hmm. So as a general rule, we don't do that. Here, of course, it was uh, their son. These are about as compelling a facts as you can imagine to say, well, here they are responsible for him. We should note something really quickly. She's uh, her case is going on right now. Her husband, the father will happen later this year. Yeah, they were going to be tried together and then it was severed, uh, which means they'll have different uh, trials. And and we don't know why it was severed, or at least I haven't seen it reported, um, which suggests that they might have different roles in this. I, I don't know. But uh, in any case, what we do know is that the parents got the gun for 
their son, that they realized that, you know, he was having mental health issues, that they were called the day of the shooting to the school, told that he had made these drawings, had said things that had the school very concerned that he was going to do acts of violence. And uh, would they take him home, hopefully get help, right? And uh, they refused to do so. Because she wanted to go see her lover. Well, I I don't know. I don't know. According Uh, to the testimony. According, um, yeah. And one thing I will say is I've learned to take with a grain of salt everything that, you know, is alleged until we actually hear the testimony and see the evidence. Um, But that would just add to the outrage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, And they didn't alert the school that their son had a gun, mm-hmm. right? So if you had, so, <laughs> as we like to do as law professors, either in class or on the exam, to keep adding a fact mm-hmm. and another fact, well, okay, you're saying that's not criminally liable. Well, what if she bought the gun for him? What if she went to the school? What if they told her your son is having homicidal ideation? What if... They asked you to take him home. What? You know, and and it's it's a ton of what ifs where all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, we've got to have some type of responsibility would mm-hmm. be the reaction. Right. And 15 year old, a 15 year old. Yes. Right. Um, and so it is pushing it in a way. And to me, the best way if I were to prosecute it, to think about it is not that they were aiding and abetting that it was their intention for him to do this, but that they were, and this is the the mental state for uh, criminal homicide in voluntary manslaughter, they were reckless, that they were fully aware that he was essentially a, a weapon. They allowed him to have a weapon. They knew he had these mental health issues. And therefore, we can hold him in the same way that if I give my keys to someone who is very drunk, we might say, and they go kill someone, I'm responsible for it. Now, that's actually another example where courts have gone different ways, mm-hmm. right? Just to give you a sense of how wary the law is of extending criminal liability because of this slippery slope and this notion that, you know, people make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the, that's the context. And um you know, I do actually have, and I don't know that the evidence will uh, bear it out, but I actually do have a way to be, <laughs> I'm not sure I could ever get anyone sympathetic mm-hmm. to Ms. Uh, Crumbly, but but at least saying, well, maybe this is why we should hesitate to assign culpability mm-hmm. to her. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> On the edge of my seat. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, don't fall off. <laughs> um, so, so here's the thing, right? And and we're going to talk more about gun violence, I think, later, a little bit uh, later on. But in these types of cases, and, and they are not common, but they are not infrequent either, right? Where the parents get the gun for the mentally ill child, by, and by that, usually it's a teenager who goes out and commits the killing. And um, I think I saw a statistic where 80% of these types of mass killings, it's a gun from the house, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, how can that happen? What what is going on here? And the uh, one thing I will say, and I don't know anything about the Crumbly's life, what they tried to do for their son and all. But 
Having seen a number of these cases and just having lived a long time now, I think there's no more difficult. Well, one of the absolute most difficult situations in life is a parent dealing with a mentally ill child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if he was showing early signs of schizophrenia, teenage years, early 20s are usually when it fully manifests itself. But the sense of desperation that a parent must feel uh, in that situation, I was lucky. I tried to keep, you know, the, the most difficult thing I had was to keep a connection with my teenage daughter. So I ended up watching a lot of the OC with her, which was, <laughs> I, I thought, penance enough. Right. But I mean, I cannot imagine. Right. And here's the thing, right, is that we have undoubtedly and I know this from the cases I've, I've been involved with, you know, often it is the 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 child saying, and, and again, maybe child's not the right word here because that sounds like a little kid. And we right. But uh, the, the teenage son, almost always, mm-hmm. who is saying, I really want a gun. I want to learn how to shoot. I want to join ROTC. That's one that's uh, which uh, the training. Right. right. When I go to college, um, I want to join the rifle team at school. And even if you as the parent are looking at it and saying, but but, you know, I'm worried about you. You're trying to keep some type of bond with them. Mm -hmm. And you can't really say, well, son, you know, I get you a gun, but I'm I'm afraid you're going to go shoot up the school. Right. Right. I mean, that would sever all. You know, it's it's not like, you know, when they're 14 saying, can I drive? And you can say, no, you can't. Right. Uh, Because it's illegal. But Mm -hmm. part of the problem here is that in certain instances, getting your son a gun in the situation is legal. They know that they want it. And you're trying desperately to keep the the boat afloat, right? right? Where you're parenting. Now, hopefully most people would go and take them to a psychiatrist or a mental health expert and try to get help. But I have a tad of sympathy for the parent who is, I don't know what to do. I absolutely don't know what to do. I think this is the best way to try to keep my son sort of talking to me, letting me know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, this perhaps the, a musket, though, rather yeah. than a semi-automatic uh, handgun, or, or a, 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 a PlayStation, or right, or, uh, right? or, or you know, get into boating, right? <laughs> um, but I mean, that's you know, and 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 again, I would not, and and there are other ways we could punish the Crumleys, even if we don't go with involuntary manslaughter. But the defense attorney in me goes, so this is my favorite quote these days, Catherine, from the great legal philosopher, Oscar Wilde. Okay. Um, The the truth is rarely simple. It's never pure. Um, I could show you my tattoo, but uh, with that, but uh, no, I mean, I, and it's true. Right. And so one thing about the trials, we will find out, you know, what some of what was happening uh, was. But anyway, that's why this has got so much attention, because it really would push the envelope. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but going back to Dylan Klebold, is that his name, from Mm -hmm. Columbine, Mm -hmm. you know, that every time one of these cases arise, there's all this like, let's look at ways to, I mean, yes, you are penalizing or punishing the family, but to kind of put the fear of God into people that are supplying guns. If it's the gun dealer, if it's the parents, like, hey, if your kid does something wrong, this is going to come back to bite you on your Second Amendment. Right, right. Uh, Well put. Um, and, And I will say, I think it's Dylan's mom 
it's one of the Columbine shooters' moms who has read in a book and actually speaks at various uh, things about how, as a parent, you could miss this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one reason, uh, because I'm familiar with what she has said, um, I, I, I can conjure up some Again, I'm not even sure sympathetic uh, scenarios, but I, I can I can get a, a glimmer of understanding. And thank God I was never as a parent in this situation of what it must be like right. to, to deal with this situation. So it's interesting that you raise him. Right. And, and that is part of what we need to be thinking about is how do we prevent this? from ever happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and just, um, you know, it's not just gun violence against others. I think it's three quarters of all teenage suicides are done with guns in the home, mm -hmm. right. Let alone the accidental shooting. So, right. so one thing that we do see, and this was one of the aftermaths of the shooting that, uh, the Crumbleys uh, are now charged with for what their son did is Michigan enacted laws, which had been stalled forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there are, uh, there are, criminal statutes that will penalize um, not having your guns locked up. No, they had a string lock. Yeah. Well, yeah. And 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 that's just it. Right. Then there's um, and, and there's actually child access laws. Right. Right. And uh, there are all sorts of regulations as to, you know, when a child. Uh, and again, it feels weird to say child with a 15 year old in right. this instance or in some cases, 17, 18 year olds. Right. right. Um, because. You, in many states, you can't actually have a handgun if you're under 21. And so a 19, 20 year old, mm -hmm. which from my experience is still very much a child <laughs> in many ways. Right. Um, but, um, you know, that is something that that is. We try to think, how do we keep this from ever happening again? Mm -hmm. Now, will if the Crumblies are convicted, um, you know, will that prevent another killing? Uh, because some parent in some state, you know, in Wisconsin or whatever, hears about this prosecution and they have a child who is similar. If so, then one of the purposes of the criminal law is to deter. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, in that case, it may be worth stretching that envelope, right? Mm -hmm. Going a little bit down the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. That would be the argument for, for doing it. Right. But, you know, I, I do think that these types of cases have helped in terms of legislatures, you know, responding in the immediacy of the situation in a way that they never would. Uh, are. And, and again, by saying it helps, I don't in any way want to suggest that this was a good thing, right? right. I, I can't even, you know, I've been putting myself for this podcast in the crumbly shoes. Right. I, I, I probably will stop start sobbing if I think about putting myself in the victim's uh, parent's shoes, right? I, I just cannot imagine right. a, a more terrible. So kind of on that same vein, but a little bit different was the Newport News mm -hmm. uh, where the mother pled guilty to child neglect after her six year old took a gun to school and purposely shot his teacher wounding only. So you just mentioned the word deterrent. So is there could this make a deterrent trend for parents to step up and prevent like these increasingly commonplace uh Incidents of school shootings and and gun violence. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, deterrence is almost impossible to measure, right? Because the whole idea is how do you measure something that's not happening, right? right? And and uh, so in all sorts of does the death penalty deter, right? I mean, empiricists struggle with how to measure it. I think as a common sense matter, um, I understand why a prosecutor 
would be seeking this in part on the rationale. If we punish the crumblies, right, word will get out. I do think it can only be part of the arsenal. I think about drunk driving and how when I was growing up, um, uh, drunk driving was actually somewhat accepted. It was punished in Wisconsin, where I grew up, as a civil offense, right? It wasn't even a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. And through greater public consciousness, especially through Mothers Against Drunk Driving, it started to be recognized as, no, this is a, a this is not a teenage prank, right? This is a true societal problem. Mm -hmm. And cases were highlighted, right? Where, you know, the victims were highlighted as well as the irresponsibility of the person who is drunk driving. And we really have changed, I think, the Social culture does it still happen, of course, but um, not at the level that it was, right? And and I think we kind of have to take a similar uh, approach to gun violence. Um, you know, we could talk about the uh, the well, National that, Rifle Association, yes, right? Leads which, me right into my yeah, my next question, which is talking about gun control. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about mothers against uh, drunk driving. There wasn't an accompanying organization with the lobbying right. power of of the right. NRA. So is it ever going are we ever going to find that um, even though 56 percent of Americans believe that we should have some gun reform? But year after year, Congress after Congress, we don't get that. So as you may be aware, the NRA is in. In, a little trouble. <laughs> a little trouble, right? So, I mean, this is the moment, I think, right? Now, uh, you know, Second Amendment absolutism, um, you know, which my my former colleague, Marianne Franks, was uh, truly uh, a leading light and talking about, right, is still out there, right? And you can support the Second Amendment without the absolutism, right, that I have a thing. And there's a case before the Supreme Court right now where it was interesting to see the justices squirm, right, with their broad approach to, well, the majority of the court toward allowing Second Amendment rights. And it was, you know, basically someone who is under a restraining order for domestic violence. Should we be able to keep the guns out of him? you know, his hands. Right. And and you could tell they really wanted to. But how do they do this consistent with, well, we you know, this is a constitutional right and, you know, open carry and all this other mm -hmm. uh, approach. So, you know, <laughs> I remain hopeful, Catherine, that open, we can have prayers, a, a, a conversation. Prayers, right. Yes. Um, you know, whenever I thought about running for political office, right, until, you know, 18 things come to mind as to why I, I wish should not. I actually was uh, a member of the NRA. Are you? Was that you falling over in your chair that I just? No, heard? <laughs> not surprised at all. As a rifle owner myself. Oh well, I, I grew up in Wisconsin, and my dad was a big hunter. Right, he grew up in the Northwoods, and um, in fact, when he was a kid, they used that's how they ate during the Depression. Right, mm -hmm. was with what. They shot out in the woods, right, and and I think one of his hopes, dreams, I broke many of his was that I would join him in. He loved to hunt. Right. And so I had to take an NRA gun safety course <laughs> and I had to join the NRA. And I've always thought, you know, on the debate stage. Right. I could say, well, I was, you know, from an early age, a member of the NRA. But of course, it was such a different organization. Sure. Then. Such a different organization. It was actually concerned about gun safety. That was its driving force. Right. So, I mean, that's a much larger discussion, right? right. Whether the political landscape could ever change Wins to where we ever. could get uh, meaningful reform. And 
Uh, depends on what hour of the day you catch me. Uh, is it five o'clock somewhere? Yeah, I, I tend to be more optimistic, more right? <laughs> well, I don't want to let you go without talking about this execution uh, yeah. last week, the Smith execution, which was the first in the United States using nitrogen gas. But I noticed the New York Times in reporting it said it was the first known use of the gas. I, I was like, Hmm. What's why does it say known? I suspect that's a caution on the part of a fact checker, okay. um, because it's certainly in the modern era, as in controlled state executions. And I can't even imagine before we started having good reporting, right, that this was happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we can safely say, um, at least within the United States, right. right? And, you know, it is, we well, we had a podcast, and I'm sure your uh, listeners will run and try to pull it up, right? Where we talked about how some states are trying to move to fentanyl, mm -hmm. right? And, and it is this continuing, the myth of Sisyphus uh, right. always comes to mind, right? Uh, Sisyphean uh, effort to find quote, this is not my quote, uh, a humane way to execute people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I increasingly am convinced is that it's always going to fail when you're trying to take someone's life who is not, you know, uh, it's not euthanasia or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. a, you're, you know, it's the state exercising the power, right? right. Um, and of course, what complicates it for the state and why they're having to do nitrogen is they can no longer get the drugs. Because as we talked about in that last podcast, the pharmaceutical companies were like, yeah, we really don't think it's a great advertisement that, you know, hey, a nightmare. <laughs> the, 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 the drug of executioners everywhere. Right. And and here's your prescription. Right. And um, the you know, AMA, the American Medical Association, you you would get in trouble as a doctor if you participated in this. Right. Because this goes against the Hippocratic Oath. Right. And so you basically have like dentists and vets and sometimes just some bureau of prison uh, bureaucrat trying to figure out how do you put someone to death? Right. Right. And um, unsurprisingly, they they're not good at it. Right? right. At least in terms of trying to minimize uh, the pain. And um, yeah, so the Smith execution is. Do we need to go back to. Was it Gary Gilmore? The and firing the firing squad, squad in right? Utah? Yeah, um, which is interesting in and of itself, right? <laughs> but, um, but you know, the thing is, I am sure if we use the firing squad, that there will be botched executions. Those aren't NRA members. <laughs> right, right. So um, it, it's something where it's hard to. Uh, yeah, I, I again, I think it's, you know, it's it's an impossible task, right, right. To, to find a way to do it where uh, it's not going to create a public spectacle on right. some level. And then it's just a question of, is it at such a level that the public will not accept it anymore? Well, finally, stop. So the executed Kenneth Smith had mm. already survived a previous day yeah. with death with a botched execution with a lethal injection failed to launch. Um, so is nitrogen going to be the new cool kids choice uh, moving forward yeah. from from the reporting? It sounded like it did not go without hiccups. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not sure there's anything that would not. Right. Even even in hospice care. Right. Which is as as loving a situation as you can imagine. You know, the, those endings are not always 
wonderful, right? So um, I just don't think there is a, if you will, foolproof way to, to do it. And and by the way, this is not the first time the state has tried to take two shots at an execution. There's actually a Supreme Court case mm-hmm. uh, from when electrocution was first being used, which is something we talked about in the last podcast, right? Is a very interesting history is right. the, the battle between Edison and uh, Westinghouse as to <laughs> whose method would be used to electrocute? Because again, neither wanted their electricity to be right. the right one. It was a case called Kemmler and they tried to execute Mr. Kemmler. It failed. And then they went back a little while later to try to execute him again. And he brought you know, an action to try to stop it. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the courts said, and this is, I forget, the like 1940s said, basically what they say is what I've been saying. We don't think there's a really good way to do this. Mm-hmm. So by definition, if you're trying to kill someone, it's going to be cruel. And therefore, we don't think that it's against the Constitution. Uh, the dissent was like, you know, this is like out of medieval torture time where you kill someone in by installments. Right. right. Um, and, and in this case, they, as I recall with Smith, they never actually got to the point where they were trying to inject the drugs. But the first failed attempt was lethal injection wasn't going to work on him, right? Mm -hmm. And can I just say before we sign off on Smith, um, to me, the real troubling aspect of Smith is that he was sentenced to death despite 11 jurors wanting life. One juror voted for death. 11 jurors voted for life. Alabama had what was known as judicial override, Mm -hmm. and the judge imposed death. And you know, this this is a whole nother topic about, sure. you know, giving lip service right to, oh, we want, you know, the death penalty to only be uh, implemented when it's the uh, conscience of the community saying that it should be. And yet we have cases like that. And there's an astonishing number of people on Alabama's death row. Now, Alabama, to their credit, have gotten rid of that. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those cases from before that. But, um, you know, I there's a lot of it's going to shock you, uh, you know, sort of hypocrisy woven into the death penalty jurisprudence, criminal justice system, perhaps more generally, society more generally. It's not five o'clock yet, Catherine. I'm not in my optimistic <laughs> mode. But but that is that to me, even more than they had tried to kill him once before with lethal injection and couldn't do it. Now they're trying a second time. To me, the more shocking is that they were trying to do it even though 11 jurors you have to get on a death penalty jury. You have to say you are capable of imposing the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Said this is not someone who deserves the ultimate sanction, and yet a single judge decided, "Nope, I'm going to override that." I know better. Yeah, hmm. as always, enlightening, macabre, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> always, a I love having the word macabre described. Uh, <laughs> my my students, that's the favorite comment they write on my student evals is, you know, macabre. And uh, and and we learned what the meaning of Sisyphean was. Right? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Pushing up, pushing up. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Macabre. Always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. See you around. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for The Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. 
Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's upcoming Sustainable Development Goals and Racial Justice Town Hall, Saturday, March 2nd at the Freedom Lab Miami. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu.